So I'm reading from the book of two Chronicles, so named because there are two books called Chronicles. I'm reading from chapter 34. It's on the screen for you. And this is about a chap called King Josiah. I'm reading from the beginning of chapter 34 in the New International Version. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his 12th year, when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction... It's too far away. The altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke into pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And so he purged Judah and Jerusalem in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles, and crushed the idols to powder, and cut up all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. So this morning, I want to talk about cost. We've been talking about preparing the land, this morning, my title is The Cost of Growth. You see, there's a cost to everything, isn't there? How many of you know there's a cost to everything? Whether it costs you money, whether it costs time, whether it costs energy, everything has a cost. They say the best things in life are free. I have yet to find anything, with the exception of possibly air, that does not cost me anything. There's, there's, sometimes it's just the cost of doing one thing over doing something else. A good friend and mentor to me said to me recently, every yes you say is a no to something else. Every yes you say is a no to something else. And God gives us choices. The Bible is full of them. We were reminded a couple of weeks ago by Trevor about Adam and Eve. They had a choice. Do they eat from the tree of life or do they not eat from the tree? They had a choice. In, in Deuteronomy, God says to the people of Israel, choose life or choose death. And then helpfully says, choose life. There is a choice. The Bible is full of them. And the kings in the Old Testament made choices. And we have people kings who made good choices. For example, we have King David, who it says he was a man after God's own heart. Or King Hezekiah, it says he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord. And people like King Uzziah and King Solomon at the start of his reign, choosing wisdom above other, other things, making good decisions. But, you know, for every good king in the Old Testament, there is what seems like a myriad of bad kings, isn't there, who made bad decisions. And here's an example of one of them. This is, um, this is Manasseh. Ooh, Trevor's booing. <laughs> and it says, 
In uh, 2 Chronicles 33, just before the chapter Ruth read, it says, he did, about Manasseh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Manasseh led Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. He led them astray to do more evil than the evil people. That's not a great legacy, is it? Let's be honest. And although Manasseh does repent towards the end of his life, so much damage is done by this point. And then his son comes along. His son is King Amon. And his son comes along. And his son is so evil that he lasts two years before people think, right, this is it, we're getting rid of him. And they kill him. And this is the context of King Josiah's reign. This is where King Josiah comes along. And Ruth just read from two chronicles just now. Um, and many of you will know that the books, of two, uh, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles kind of run alongside each other. And so we're going to pick this story up in the two Kings part of it. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you've got them, to two Kings chapter 22. We're going to be in verse 8. So King Josiah has been on the throne for a bit, and um, they've started repairing the temple. In, in the 18th year of his reign, they start repairing the temple. And then in verse 8, we read about a discovery that the high priest makes. It says, verse 8, And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shapham the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shapham, and he read it. And Shapham the secretary came to the king and reported it to the king. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. That was just to help get things moving with the repairing of the house of God. And it says, Then Shapham the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Like where he says, a book, just any book. But it's not just any book, and Shepham reads it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shepham, and Anakbor the son of Micaiah, and Shepham the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people. And for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Great is the wrath of the Lord, because our fathers haven't done what they should. So they found the book of the law. They're they're re repairing the temple and they find the book of the law it's been gathering dust how many of you have books like that in your houses that have been there for a while and just gathering dust to the side this book of the law has been lost no one knew where it was nobody has read it for years and they find this this the book of the law the the scriptures the old testament law and they take it to king josiah and they read it and immediately he is moved in such a way that he rips his clothes. He tears his clothes. 
Now, for us, this is a bit of a weird picture. I, I, I haven't heard many people, when they're upset recently, tearing their clothes. But this is an ancient Jewish tradition, and it's still practiced today. The word for it, apparently, is called kriah, K-R-I-A-H in the English version of Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and it is an exp- it's an expression of anger and grief in the face of death. And what usually happens is at a funeral, the, the, people, the relatives of the deceased will tear their clothes to demonstrate their grief, to demonstrate their pain and their loss. It's a public thing that is done. And then they will walk around with those clothes for, for seven days, and if not longer. This is where Josiah gets to. He is at a point, having heard the word of God, he is at a point of mourning over his nation. This is the power of the word of God. Can you imagine if you read this this, and were moved like that? God, would you move our hearts as we read your word, Jesus? So from this place of mourning, he sends off some of his servants to go and inquire of a a prophetess. That's a hard word to say. And um, her name's Huldah. And she confirms the judgment that is coming to Israel. She says, yeah, all that stuff that's been prophesied by Jeremiah and other people and all the stuff you've read in the the scriptures, yeah, it's going to happen. God says it's going to happen. The people of Israel are going to be carried off into exile. They're going to be taken out of their land. But she says this. Let's turn to verse 18. She says this. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. In other words, because you were moved, God says, because you were moved, Josiah, because your heart was moved. That word in in the ASV, it says penitent, but it means means softened, it means reacted. Um, Because you were moved, I will move. Because... Because Josiah is moved in this moment, God says, I will move and I will hold back judgment. And then Josiah gathers all the people of Israel together. He, he brings them all to Jerusalem and he renews the covenant between Israel and God. And what follows is a wide range of sweeping reforms and we don't have time to go into to read them all now, but it is what I've described in my notes as a holy rampage. He, he goes through and he destroys anything that is not of God. He destroys any idol. He destroys, it says he, just, he tears down the altars. 
He destroys them completely. He defiles places. He, he ruins it. <laughs> anything that is not of his God. He destroys the idols and the Asherah poles and the high places. And then we read verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 21. It says, And the king commands all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it, is, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the reigns of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and their commences and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of God. A king, a king caught up in the purposes of God makes some incredibly radical choices. And he sees a people restored to God. A people restored to their God, to the God, Yahweh. What a legacy that is. What a legacy. I love, I, I love the story of Josiah. It's only about three pages long. But I love it because it's just, you know, to make that much of an impact. That's a legacy. That's growth. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't this be an amazing legacy for us to see people restored to God? To see people coming back to God? To see the town of Huddersfield come back to God? But you know, this cost Josiah. This marked his whole reign but it cost him. He had to go against the curve. He had to go against what society was doing. He had to go and upset quite a lot of people, I imagine. When you destroy their livelihoods, when you destroy things that people worship, they're not generally happy about it. <laughs> it cost him. And if we are believing for God to move in the lives of us and in the lives of our people in our town, then it is going to cost us. So let's take a moment, let's take some time to look at some of the cost Josiah paid. Those things that Ruth read about in 2 Chronicles. So let's turn, we'll just put it up actually. 2 Chronicles 34 verse 3 says this, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. So we're going to look at those three things. And I'm going to start with idols. Or as my Bible calls it, car says in the ESV, carved and metal images. Now I'm going to take a guess that not many people have carved and metal idols in the middle of their living room at home. In all seriousness, if you do, they need to go. <laughs> but I'm going to guess that most of us, that's, that's not a big issue. We don't go home and we don't bow down to our 
fireplace or anything like that. We, that's not how it, this works out in our lives, generally. But you know, an idol is not just a physical thing. It's something or someone that you worship. And our immediate reaction is going to be, I don't have any idols. I don't have any idols. But here's a question. What absorbs your time? What takes your money? I read this uh, definition of of an idol, and I I thought this was really good. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination. I love that. Your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. There's this quote. This is attributed to Martin Luther, the uh, Protestant reformist. He said, show me where a man spends his time and money and I'll show you his God. Show me where a man spends his time and money and I'll show you his God. And this isn't necessarily all bad things. Good things can become idols for us. Our education, our occupation, money, sex, relationships, influence, wanting to be an influence. You know, we, we talk about influencers, don't we, a lot of the time, some, and we say, oh, these people are just out to get money. But actually, I think most of us want to have some kind of influence, don't we, in, our, in, in the environments we find ourselves. But influence can become an idol for us, that desire to be an influencer. Even family can become an idol for us. Where do you go to find meaning? What do you sacrifice to get these things? What was the first thing you picked up this morning? What was the first thing you picked up this morning? Now, I'm going to be honest, the first thing I picked up was my phone. And I know for many of us, that's a challenge. On average, in the UK, most people, the average screen time, not including watching telly or Netflix or films, so this is just sat on your phone, is three and a half hours per day. Average screen time. That works out at a day a week. A whole day a week, 24 hours, which obviously works out at 52 days a year. A day a week when our eyes are down, not up. Yeah, and, and for me, the biggest thing recently was social media. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just delete the social media off my phone. Because I pick my phone up and I go onto Facebook or Instagram, that sort of thing. So I deleted social media off my phone. But do you know what I found? I still picked up my phone. And I've now got a 22-day streak on Duolingo. And, <laughs> and, and I've read the BBC News website more than probably completed it, I think, by now. The point is this. I, I put my phone down. I, I deleted social media thinking, that's how I'll fix this. And yet somehow... It didn't fix it. I still picked it up. I still, that habit, that, that idol was still there. And we now have been having conversations as a family, like, what do we do about this? How do we stop this happening? 
Where do we charge our phones overnight? Do we need to buy alarm clocks for our room for, that are not our phones? So that the first thing I pick up in the morning is not my phone. The first thing I do in the morning should be, good morning, God. Looking up, not looking down. Idols take you away from the throne of God and they put you on shaky ground because they'll never satisfy. I am never going to get fulfillment from my iPhone. But I will get fulfillment from him. And maybe it's not your phone, maybe it's something else in your life, but I want to ask you this question, what have you allowed to become an idol? It's time to tear it down. From those places we have put it in. You know, we serve a jealous God. He doesn't share his glory. <laughs> and it says in, in the very familiar, the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Or alongside me. And sometimes, do you find we want to compartmentalize God? Sometimes we have this attitude almost of, you can have this bit, God. You can have 10.30 till 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning, even when England are playing football. You can have that, but you can't have Saturday afternoon because that's my time. Or you can have this bit of my money, God. Yeah, God, I believe in tithing and I'm going to give you 10%, but everything else is mine. God is looking for a wholehearted people. You know, when we have that attitude to giving, when we say, yeah, God, you can have this 10% and the rest is mine. Actually, that's not a gift to God. That's a bill paid. That's how our brain works. I've paid that bill over there. The rest is mine. But actually, it's all his. And God is looking for a wholehearted people, a people who, who are all in. Who don't, don't try and balance God alongside other things. He wants, he wants your, your all. The second thing Josiah tore down was the Asherim poles. And these were symbols or, or often poles set up alongside altars. And they represented a couple of things. And one of the things they represented was that there were multiple gods. But there is only one God and he doesn't share his glory. And his command over the ages was tear them down, tear them down. The other thing those poles are a symbol of is fertility. And uh, the goddess uh, Asherah is a symbol of fertility in, a, in pagan times. And um, this, for me, as I was reading this, this demonstrated a reliance and a trust in something other than the God of Israel. You know, when you have to go to a to an to an Asherah pole to, to, because you want to have a child, you're not putting your faith in God to provide that child. And it's similar in some ways to our last point, but slightly more nuanced. What or who are you putting your trust in? See, we might pray for financial provision. 
We might pray, God, would you provide, Jesus, we stand here this morning, Jesus, you, you provide everything I need. Lord God, would you, would you do everything? Uh, and we might say we're trusting God, but really what happens when we leave this place is we get stressed. We get, we get all tied down. We get all burdened. We, we try and fix things ourselves. We try and, try and make everything work. But God says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Where are you putting your energy? Is it into seeking his face? Or is it into your personal plans? I had the privilege this week of taking some time out to go walking. And one of the things God said to me as I was walking with him was, would you be satisfied if the only thing you ever did was seek my face? If that's all you were known for, would you be satisfied? If all your plans fell down, if people thought you were a bit weird, I mean they do, but if people thought you were a bit weirder, would you be satisfied in just knowing that you seeked my, sought my face? Now, I want to be clear, this isn't about making wise choices and being good stewards. God calls us to be wise and to make good choices. I was blessed uh, a few months ago, probably about eight months ago now, six to eight months ago, to spend some time with Marcus. We went through some of our finance stuff um, and just really helped me to kind of budget and understand some stuff. Really blessed. Like, it's good to, to budget. I'm not saying don't budget. But actually... The outcome of that is when I look at those numbers, I don't sit there and go, I go, God, you're in charge. It's knowing he's the one you rely on, following him and trusting him. And then finally, the high places. So the high places are referred to throughout scripture. And these are places that have been set up in Judah and all of Israel for worshipping other gods. That they're set up all around, all around Israel. But God was really clear, and actually, at times, some people set them up to worship God, the God of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. But God had said to His people in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter twelve, He said this: "You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, in the way the pagans worship theirs." But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. That's Deuteronomy 12, 4 to 5. And this place was the temple in Jerusalem. And by setting up high places and following the pagan cults and the religions, what they were doing was they were setting up altars of convenience. They were setting up altars that said, you can come and worship near to your house, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want. But God said, you need to come to Jerusalem. This is where you're to come to worship. See, worship should cost us. A simple look through the offerings that are... uh, prescribed in, in, the Levitica, in Leviticus in the Old Testament will help us to realize that the offering should cost something. Okay, if, if you bought a lamb as an offering, 
in, in the Old Testament, if you bought a lamb, that had cost you something. First of all, you've got the actual lamb <laughs> that you've got to, to get to, to the place, to Jerusalem, to be offered. But then that lamb's got to come from somewhere, so you've got to have had a sheep that has spent the last, however, I don't know how long it takes a sheep to grow, but however, however many months that sheep has grow, <laughs> grown this little lamb, so that, that sheep has basically been out of action because it's been growing this lamb, and, and now you take this lamb and you sacrifice it. It's cost something. It's cost energy. It's cost time. It's not just about going, right, yeah, here's my lamb. It's cost something. And although we are saved by grace, and I am so thankful we don't have to bring animals in here every Sunday morning. <laughs> There's enough muck on the carpet as it is. Um, I am so thankful we don't have to do that. So, but it doesn't mean it shouldn't cost us. And in fact, in Romans 1, this is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Of course, we know Jesus commands us to daily take up our cross to count the cost. And if you've not listened to the word that Lakundu brought to us on the church weekend away, please go on our website, go on our YouTube channel or our, our podcast and listen to it about counting the cost. But so often we are willing, we are unwilling to be inconvenienced. So what does this look like practically? Well, maybe it means stepping out of your comfort zone. Maybe it means reaching out to people, talking to people that you wouldn't normally talk to, welcoming people into your life, into your house. Maybe it means a bit of mess. Maybe it means a bit of dirt. Maybe it means changing your plans. Maybe it means giving up some time to serve. You know, I just need to be real. We have a shortage of kids workers at the moment. And uh, it's great. We've, one of the reasons we've got a shortage of kids workers is because we've had, had growth in the church family. <laughs> we've got new kids coming. But maybe for you, maybe for you, the, the way you, God is calling you to be inconvenienced is to serve in that way. I just throw that out there. But what did Josiah do? He gathered the people in Jerusalem and he read the word to them. And then they had Passover together. One way we respond to this is to give ourselves to the gatherings of God's people. And in our church family, that looks like Sunday mornings, particularly Sunday mornings, family hubs, prayer meetings, and other teaching sessions we put on. I need to be honest, we don't put these on because we have nothing better to do on a Wednesday night. We don't put these on because me and Trev and Ali like hanging out down here at Jubilee Centre every week. We don't do it to keep people happy, although I know it does keep some people happy. So that's nice. That's a little nice byproduct. But we put these times on because we long to see the saints equipped. 
We put these times on because we long to see people encountering the King of Kings. And we know that we need to press into what God is calling us to. We want to see heaven come to earth. And that takes time. That takes us standing in his presence together. That takes us worshipping him and praying. That's why we come together. And maybe, just maybe, getting to some of these is a little inconvenient for you right now. Now, I want to be really clear. There are legitimate reasons. I'm looking at my lovely friend Jen down here is a nurse. And we need nurses. <laughs> and so, Jen, you need to go to work to be a nurse. Like, like. So, <laughs> there are legitimate reasons why people can't come sometimes to things. But if we're honest, often there isn't. Often, it's a bit inconvenient, I'm quite tired from the day, I just want to sit and watch telly, and yeah, and I've done that, like, turn around to Ruth and go, it's your turn this week. <laughs> but I have never, if I've gone with the right heart, and I've let my heart be softened, I have never regretted it. You know, one of the things that really blessed me at, at Wildfires Festival, where a few of us were at this year, was seeing the youth just, like, not wanting to stop worshipping and getting up early for prayer meetings. Now, I have a teenage daughter. Getting her up early in the morning and potentially missing breakfast <laughs> is, is a challenge. I think it's impossible. But there were young people who wanted to be in the presence of God so much that they were getting up at, at 7 a.m. to go and pray. And then the leaders were having to send them off to go and have breakfast. What is God calling us to be inconvenienced by? What if God is calling us to be inconvenienced so that he can pour out his presence upon our town? And the outcome with King Josiah, while well, we read earlier, God's heart was moved and judgment was delayed. There was a Passover like never before. There were the people restored to God. And who were these people? Who were these people that were restored to God? Well, these were the people that would then go into exile. And some of these people would stand strong. They were people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People who literally stood and saw the mouths of lions shut and stood in the fiery furnace. These people came out of this move of God. And it says of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, verse 25, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So my challenge to us this morning is to count the cost of growth. I believe God's going to grow us as individuals, us as a church. I believe he's moving in these times. And it's time to tear down the idols that have taken the place of God, those things that have tried to share his glory. 
those things that are taken our reliance off the Father. And it's time to tear down the altars of convenience. We read in Acts 2, this amazing revival that starts, this amazing moment where the church is born. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They were devoted to putting God and only God first. And it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They trusted in him. And day by day, they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They allowed themselves to be inconvenienced. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were saved, being saved. A land prepared with the cost counted sees growth.